This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Patty Farmer, the author of Playboy Swings, How Hugh Hefner and Playboy Changed the Face of Music. Our conversation examines the role that Hugh Hefner and Playboy had in shaping jazz through its television shows, clubs, music festivals, and recording label. We also explore the role of Playboy in popularizing jazz and integrating show business. Along the way, we hear about how Playboy helped the careers of numerous musicians and comedians. Hello. Hi, Richard. Hi. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I am, you know, for such an exciting topic like Playboy, I hate to tell you, but I'm just the geek that likes to do research. And, and my area of expertise and interest is entertainment. So I'm, I'm constantly researching entertainment history, uh, how certain nightclubs came to be, the history of nightclubs, uh, performers, entertainers, and um, that's actually how I started writing my first book, which was about the Persian Room in New York. I heard about this uh, nightclub and, and started doing research, and I had gone to the hotel where it was located and found out they had no archives. So I just, uh, being, again, the little nerd that I am, I, I did all this research, and I wanted a place to put it in the eventuality that somebody else would uh, come along and be interested. So luckily, I found a publisher that thought it was as interesting as I did, and I started uh, writing books. And this book, Playboy Swings, is so rich with history, uh, history of our country, but history of entertainment. Yeah, so one thing, um, I really enjoyed your book. And one of the things that I thought was, was interesting and sort of maybe challenged my assumptions is I, I sort of have, um, I don't know, maybe stereotypical or maybe even some negative assum- uh, associations with Playboy. I see it as maybe a, a political or maybe even a little bit conservative because of how it uh, depicts women. But uh, you kind of, your book really makes sort of a slightly different argument about the politics and role of Playboy, especially uh, in the time period that you're studying. That's very true, Richard. In doing all my research, uh, I discovered that, that Hef, you know, and when we say Playboy, we're really talking about Hugh Hefner because everything went through Hef and Hef is still, you know, the final stamp on everything. But his core beliefs were very much um, 
the activist. You know, he's all about civil rights and human rights and uh, gay rights and, believe it or not, women's rights. So I found that very interesting, which I hadn't expected to going into the project. Um, but, you know, that, that is really his his core belief, so he pushed that forward every every chance he could. And a lot of times it got him into trouble. You know, civil rights with his TV shows, uh, Playboy Penthouse and Playboy After Dark, he integrated the shows. And he was threatened many times with the loss of both advertisers and sponsors. But he never backed down. That was what he believed in. He believed in integration. And Richard, you have to remember, we're talking about 1959 here. So a lot of this was shocking. You know, it was shocking to see Nat King Cole come and sit on the couch with a white woman. And um, he lost sponsors over that, but he still, that was what he believed and that's what he uh, forged ahead with. And Dick Gregory performed at his Playboy Club. And Dick, to this day, credits Hugh Hefner with breaking the color barrier on stage. So there's a lot that people don't know. And when I talk around the country, I ask my audience, I say, you know, what's the first thing you think about when you hear the word Playboy? And, of course, uh, as you would guess, it's bunnies or centerfolds. And... I acknowledge that, you know, it's not the first thing you think about, but I put forth that I think music and entertainment should be the second thing you think about with Playboy, because for almost 20 years, they were the largest employer of entertainment in the country. Wow. So do you have a sense of about like approximately how many people they employed and and where was it? Was it just in uh, Chicago or Los Angeles or was it around the country? Um, well, to answer that first question, I tried. I wanted to include a list of everybody who performed at a Playboy Club, and it's impossible. You know, it's easier to list, and I'm not kidding, it's easier to list people who hadn't performed at a Playboy Club than it is to make a comprehensive list of everyone who had. Um, and to your second point, there were clubs around the world. There were 40 Playboy clubs, and um, most of them were in the United States. But um, there were 40 clubs, and each of them had three or four showrooms that had entertainment on a nightly basis. So that's musicians and comics and singers and trios playing in the lounge. So, you know, that's the Playboy clubs. Playboy was also responsible for the jazz festival, the famous Playboy Jazz Festival. So there was a lot going on. They uh, encouraged and gave room to a lot of up-and-coming performers to perfect their, whether it was their comedy routine or their singing style in front of an audience before they were discovered. And there were many, many people who started at a Playboy club and either developed their talent there or were discovered there and went on to become household names. 
So uh, one, you might be interested, uh, and since you have read the book, it's not going to be a big surprise, but, um, and I bet you know who I'm going to mention, Aretha Franklin. Yeah. 18-year-old Aretha Franklin uh, started out at the Playboy Club. You know, th- th- that's one of the, the great treasures of the book is that you constantly encounter these names of, stor- of people whose stories you tell who you, I would never have thought of Aretha Franklin in Playboy, you know, as, as that's being a, 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 sp- a space where she would have played. Um, so I thought that was really great about about the book. Well, um, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about how or why uh, Hefner was so connected to jazz because uh, so much of your book revolves around jazz. Um, why, why was he connected to that? How did he see that as being integrated into what he was doing with Playboy? Um, jazz was just a personal favorite of Hef. Um, someone else might like the great American songbook or rock and roll. Hef loved jazz. And it went back to his adolescence days. In high school, he actually wrote about jazz for the high school newspaper. So when he had the opportunity to talk about it in his own publication, he did it. You know, that first magazine that came out, Playboy magazine in 1953 with Marilyn Monroe on the cover, when he had uh, had to pick who to write about in his editorial, he could have picked any movie star any politician, any sports figure, and yet he wrote about the Dorsey brothers because that's that was his passion. And later on, when he started the famous Playboy interviews, again, he could have picked, you know, any celebrity or any personality or any controversial figure, and he picked jazz great Miles Davis as the first Playboy interview. So he's always been connected to jazz. It's just been something he grew up loving and uh, really, really uh, helped advance it. Al Jarreau, in talking to me, said, you know, he credits Hef with being a friend to jazz and helping it move forward with the jazz festival. Ramsey Lewis was another one. Uh, Sonny Rollins, you know, the great Sonny Rollins. Um, all these people in talking to me have just really quietly thanked Hef for his role in helping push it forward, helping to integrate the stages also, because we're talking about, again, the early years, 1960, uh, the United States was still operating under segregation laws. And Hefner once again said, you know, that's not what I believe in and not what I'm going to choose to do. And he integrated the stages of the Playboy Jazz Festival, the Playboy Clubs. And again, he got in trouble for it, but he didn't back down. Well, in some ways, was his position as being uh, the publisher of Playboy, which was sort of seen as, uh, a magazine that really pushed the limits. Did that maybe help mm-hmm. him or give him sort of maybe uh, a more independent space to do that integration of the, the jazz stage in a way that maybe some other businesses or promoters maybe wouldn't have done? He was already an outcast, so he could he could do this other thing too, right? Well, you know, that's an interesting point. But 
I, I would argue that he maybe should have gone in the opposite direction and fallen in line a little bit because he had the government constantly um, on his back, so to speak, you know, trying to regulate Playboy. And he had the Catholic Church, which was huge, you know, trying to shut him down. So you would think he wouldn't be bucking the system so much. But I don't think he could help himself. You know, whether it was to his own detriment or not, he just had to live by his own beliefs. And uh, case in point was when he opened uh, the first club was in Chicago. And he ended up, he wanted to quickly open more. So he, he followed a very new business model at that time, which was franchising. And he franchised the next two clubs to partners in Miami and New Orleans. And immediately he saw they were not being operated the way he wanted. You know, they were enforcing segregation and they were uh, limiting entrance to, um, to black members. And so have quickly brought them back. I think it was like six or nine months after he had made these agreements and he brought them back at a huge cost to the Playboy uh, and a huge profit to the people that were his partners. They made something like 300% for the small time that they owned the partnership. So um, I just don't think he could have helped himself. Yeah. Um, so you, you were talking about those clubs in the South and um, in the book, you, you actually tell quite a few stories about them. I think especially the one maybe in New Orleans. Um, so what was it like in these clubs if you were listening to music? Um, you know, how long were the sets? Um, what kind of songs would they be playing? Um, how many shows a night would they be playing? All that kind of stuff. Well, um, as you can guess, especially in New Orleans, uh, jazz. There was a lot of jazz going on. And um, like I previously mentioned, there were a lot of showrooms. So we um, always tried to pair a comedian and a singer. And they'd move from room to room. So they might start in the first floor, and the comedian would come on and do their 20 minutes, and then a singer would come on and do their 40 minutes. And at the same time that the singer would take the stage, the comedian would go to the second floor and start his second second act. And the, the um, very interesting thing was um, that they worked as long as there was an audience. So they could hit four shows, and if they had a percentage, I think it was 15%, of the audience showed up for the next show, and they had to do it. So, uh, you know, out of uh, 15 people showed up, they had to put on another show. And the next time, if there were, you know, three people showed up, they had to keep they had to keep working as long as there were people. And you t- and you talk and you write about how some of the artists would do four and five shows a night. I was just uh, amazed and blown away at that. Oh yes. On a regular basis, that was, you know, expected at least four or five shows a night. Yeah. Well, to me, it just, it seemed like it would really help these musicians just really hone their craft. 
I mean, to have that many shows, to have regular bookings, this regular circuit, it seems like that would have really helped artists, especially like young artists, really um, become expert performers. Is, is that kind of what uh, your interviewees told you? You hit the nail on the head. Uh, a lot of performers really honed their crafts, both uh, the musicians as well as the singers and the comics. You know, they Playboy gave them a chance to work on a regular basis and get paid for learning. It, it was so many clubs. You had, had many of these folks, many of these entertainers, who would work 40 weeks out of a year for Playboy. You know, it was like their job, and they'd move from club to club. And it might take them a couple of years before they were, you know, quote-unquote, discovered. And some of them never became household names, and yet they worked 10 years at Playboy, and it was just their job. But you had people like Jerry Van Dyke, who worked for many years, and he said, you know, he learned timing and uh, the comedy, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And finally, he was discovered. Uh, a critic came in, Earl Wilson, and wrote about him, and uh, he was off to Hollywood. You also have Al Jarreau, you know, the great uh, musician Al Jarreau. Well, he started at Flyboy um, as part of a duo. He wasn't even Al Jarreau. He was part of a, a duo called Al and Julio. And uh, they worked and perfected their timing and, and their, their songs until uh, Al was discovered and asked, to be on the Johnny Carson show. And that was while he was working at Playboy. So you're absolutely right. It gave all these wonderful people time to learn. It was really, you know, boot camp for entertainers. Well, one of the other things, and you've mentioned this several times, and I wanted to pick up this thread, is that um, jazz musicians were playing on the same stages with comedians, and they got to know one another. And it's interesting because I, I read a lot of books about music. I've read quite a few books about jazz. Um, I don't really see scholars talking about this. So what what did the jazz musicians learn from the comedians and the comedians learned from the jazz musicians as they were trying to, to A, develop their careers, but sort of navigate this space? I, I don't really know if they learned anything about their craft from each other, but they sure did hang around together and they learned a lot about the business of show business and uh, shared a lot of stories and there was a lot of camaraderie there. You know, they helped each other. Show business people are like no other people in the world, you know, with their ability and their willingness to give a helping hand and, and advise, advise people, uh, you know, on, on different things going on. You know, Al and Julio might uh, uh, tell Flip Wilson, you know, you might try uh, this club here or that club there or this agent. So they sure did. Uh, everybody was young then and uh, willing to help each other. You know, again, going back to Al Jarreau, he told me Playboy was like the little engine that could. They made you believe anything was possible. And you saw it, you know, you saw your uh, companions and your fellow artists 
hitting it big and making it to Johnny Carson or Ed Sullivan. And everybody had these dreams and, and Playboy fostered that, that you can be, you can be anything and you can do anything and you can be discovered. And Rodney Dangerfield uh, was a Playboy and he went on to, you know, great things. So yeah, they were just, it was a, a great time. They were young and uh, happy, you know, for lack of, of better description there. Well, I, I love how you, you you have this metaphor about how sort of Playboy was sort of this little engine that could and would do and try all these different things. One thing that I learned from your book was that uh, Playboy tried to get into the recording industry and tried to to, to be a, sort of a player in, in recording jazz. Um, so talk a little bit about, about that endeavor and how successful it was or wasn't. Well, that's true. There was a Playboy record label. and. You know, very few people knew about this. You know, before I wrote the book and did a lot of research, I didn't know about it. Um, maybe because it was not one of the more successful Playboy endeavors. Uh, although they did have top recording artists. They had um, uh, Mickey Gilly was a top recorder for them. And, and oddly enough, we're here talking about jazz they did record some jazz, but they were heavy into country country music, which um, is, again, you know, a whole nother genre of music you wouldn't have thought Playboy would be involved with. But I really don't think it was anyone's love. You know, uh, Hess loved the magazine, and Victor Lowndes, who was like Hess's second the second banana playboy loved the clubs. So they didn't have anyone at the helm that really took it under their wing as, as their baby, their child. So it, it lasted a few years and it came out with a lot of good recordings and it was ultimately um, absorbed into Sony. So it had a good library that a big label was interested in, but it was never as big a success as a lot of the other ventures, the clubs for sure, or the jazz festival, or the TV shows. Do you see, uh, I mean, I, I this. when I was reading the book, I really got this sense that Playboy really helped popularize jazz and really maybe bring jazz to a wider and maybe wider, wider public um, than it had otherwise. Would you agree with that uh, observation or, or would you maybe modify it that, that Playboy maybe didn't play as big of a role in, in popularizing jazz? No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, because Hef was such a, a fan of jazz, he featured it in the magazine all the time. And at the height of Playboy magazine, they had 7 million readers. So all, all these uh, young men were reading about jazz being the sophisticated, cool music, and maybe they hadn't tried listening to jazz before and they thought they'd give it a go because Hugh Hefner and Playboy suggested it to them. So yes, absolutely. I think uh, the magazine really popular, popularized jazz and made people want to listen to it and 
with the jazz festival, it it wasn't the first jazz festival, but it was one of the first. And it made people want to sit down and listen to jazz, which was something that really wasn't done, you know, up until the 50s. You know, people go to a concert of jazz. And uh, that was new. That was new and, and exciting. You know, before that, jazz was something that you went and you you danced to. You didn't just sit down or or listen to it or put it on the phonograph while you're having a, a very romantic dinner. But that was something that uh, they did bring to the forefront, and, and it caught on that way. Well, and is that also kind of part of um, kind of like Playboy's whole like ethos that it was sort of a sophisticated, um, sort of refined, uh, way of enjoying the world. So that just, it wasn't just, uh, um, so it was like, it was a refined way of enjoying music and you're supposed to have the best kind of cars and apartments and even, right. and even sort of the, the centerfolds were supposed to be sort of like this refined enjoyment of, uh, women and sexuality. So is that, was that part of the whole sort of, playboy way of trying to um, kind of develop sort of a modern manhood or something like that. You're you're right. Absolutely. It was, it was part of playboy and that was something that everybody tried to emulate. So um, yes, definitely. Um, You also write about the, the playboy jazz survey. And I thought this was, was just fascinating to see who, the, the, the people that Playboy readers identified as sort of the top jazz musicians. Um, how did the survey come about? And um, was there anything that surprised you about the results? Um, well, I love the idea of the jazz uh, polls also. Uh, it's interesting that, that you and I feel the same way about that. Um, but Hef wants to throw it out to subscribers of Playboy magazine that if they could put together their dream band, if you would, uh, who would they pick? You know, who, who would be the trumpeter and who would be the guitarist and who's your favorite singer? And um, it was a huge success with the subscribers and they really took to it. And a few years after he opened it up to the subscribers, he expanded it and he asked the actual musicians uh, to put together their dream list. So it was just, it was a fun thing that, that subscribers looked forward to every year, which, again, just comes back to what we were talking about previously, that the magazine really made it sophisticated and made it cool and um, just elegant, almost. Yeah, Um well, um, one of the things that, that uh, kind of, or one of the stories that kind of stuck out to me was the story of, I think her name is Lainey Kazan. And mm-hmm. what, what stuck out, again, what stuck out to me about it, about her was that, um, again, my, my vision or my image of what, or how Playboy was run is it was going to be this very male-dominated institution and women were there merely to be kind of the beautiful objects, um, but they weren't allowed to run things. And that's not entirely true when you look at Lainey's story, correct? 
Correct. And, you know, I love arguing that point that uh, Playboy uh, was against women. You know, that that's so, so far from what they were. You know, from the bunnies, the many bunnies that I spoke to, just they loved the job. They were young wives, mothers, girls going to college. Uh, many of them went through college on tuition assistance. And then Lainey Kazan, she had ideas, and it was the late 70s, and some of the clubs were wobbling a little bit, and she was vocal with her ideas about, you know, why have you gotten away from jazz? And, you know, Hef said, you know, your ideas are valid. Would you be willing to come on, bar- come on board and put them into practice? So I think that does show that he was very open-minded in that respect. And then years later, on the same subject, his daughter ended up running the company. So it was not really the male-dominated company that, that a lot of people like to put forth. But Lainey did a good job. She had great ideas. She opened one a showroom in Los Angeles, did a good job with that. They asked her to take over in New York. And she did an equally wonderful job there. And it only left when Francis Ford Coppola talked her into going into movies. And uh, contrary to what we want you to believe, you really can't do it all. So she had to uh, give up the clubs to uh, get into movies. And um, I mean, and the other thing that you, you do talk about is that a lot of the the jazz clubs, um, not the jazz festival, but the jazz clubs, they sort of start winding down and being successful. I think it's probably like the late seventies and early eighties. Um, what, what happened and why, why did those clubs, uh, stop being as successful? I think it was the times, you know, um, just the, that they had the run that they did was amazing. You know, I really can't think of too many nightclubs, which is really what they were, private private clubs, and that lasted, you know, I think the the oldest one lasted twenty six years. And and that's amazing that they the majority of them lasted almost twenty years. The times changed. And that's what I think really started uh, the lack of interest. And it it was attendance fell off. You the idea of Beautiful girls in bunny outfits kind of had come and gone. The 80s were uh, fast approaching with disco, and and guys wanted to go into a disco and go home with the waitress. You know, a lot of the patrons were wearing less than the bunnies wore. You know, so it wasn't every man's fantasy anymore. And it just was an idea that, that had lasted as long as it could. So I've, I've sort of been trying to, to hold off on talking about the festivals because I think that that's something that is still going on today. And so um, what are the festivals like today? And and um, what role is, is Playboy still having in affecting jazz music? Well, you know, the festivals were amazing. The first one, um, as you probably know, and you, your listeners probably know, uh, was 1959, and uh, again, going back to uh, what 
jazz meant to Hef, it was five years that the magazine had been going, and Hef was looking for a way to commemorate it, and he decided to throw a big party. Him and uh, Victor Lowndes had decided they were going to have this big party, and where should they have it, and what should they do? And they decided to have a big jazz party, and it turned into the festival. And every single jazz icon you can think of was there. You know, anybody who got that phone call from Ellis Fitzgerald to uh, uh, Duke Ellington to on and on and on, Sonny Rollins, all the greats, everybody was there with the exception of Frank Sinatra. He was asked and uh, he was making a movie and couldn't be there. But it was it was amazing and again, uh, have caused a lot of controversy with that first one because he did integrate not only the stage but also the audience. But it was a huge success and just made everybody realize at once again, you know, what a great sound jazz was. And then they got too busy with the clubs to make it an annual event but they went back to the festivals in the 70s and it's been going every year since. And there's a huge competition to try to get to perform at the festival. It's really um, a very prestigious. We talked to Gregory Porter last year and, and he said, you know, there are certain venues that he performs at that are just... Uh, Iconic, and the Playboy Jazz Festival is one of them. Dee uh, Dee Bridgewater said the same thing. It's, you know, an honor and a privilege and, you know, a, a milestone in your career to play at the jazz festivals. And they're still going. It's at the Hollywood Bowl. And um, there's no end in sight. Well, this has just been a, a wonderful opportunity for me to learn. Uh, a lot about jazz and stuff that I, I really didn't know. Um, I hadn't made this connection. So thank you for uh, writing this book and thank you for talking with me today. You've been listening to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. Today I've been talking with Patty Farmer, the author of Playboy Swings, How Hugh Hefner and Playboy Changed the Face of Music. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening.